this morning, Paul Harlan is preaching with us. Paul has been with us for a lot of years, uh, was a church planter and ended up here with us at New City. He and his family serve and have served like everywhere at New City. Um, love Paul. He is a brother. Uh, he also works with our missional communities. Uh, and I want to pray for Paul as, as he comes to bring the word. And I want to ask, as I do every week, you guys pray with me. Don't just listen to my words. Listen if you want to and agree with my words. God hears our prayers. And so we want to pray that God will do something uh, really, really great for us today. And we want to pray that the Holy Spirit will be with us in a mighty way. So um, pray with me as we pray for Paul. Will you all do that? Yes, good. Amen. Father, uh, thank you for Paul and um, his whole family. Thank you for the way that they serve. Thank you for Paul's willingness to, um, to serve wherever he's needed. Uh, God, he is a, has been and is a gift to New City, and we are thankful for him. Um, we pray, Holy Spirit, for Paul, that you would, that you would be with him in a great way, um, that you would remind him that you would lead him, that you would give him the words, even now to say that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us through the word today. And we pray for ourselves. We pray that we would, we would hear, Holy Spirit, open our ears, open our eyes. Uh, we pray that through, through the word and through Paul's words today, Jesus would be um, made much of and that beholding his glory, we would be transformed from one degree um, of glory ourselves to another. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. Were y'all thinking the same thing I was thinking? That man looks way too comfortable to possibly be preaching today. Um, and another announcement. Keith's MC is not the only one recruiting, okay? Right, Ted? So, as Keith said, my name is Paul Harlan. I am one of the missional community leaders here at New City. Um, I think my family's been here for like eight years. Uh, Keith said that, you know, I'm a gift here, but um, Keith knows the story. But New City was a gift to our family during the transition when we came to New City. So you guys have been an extreme blessing and great family and friends, and we have loved our time here at New City. So if you've been with us for the past several weeks, we've been walking through the book of Titus. This is week seven in the book of Titus. Um, if you have not been with us or if you have missed some, I would encourage you to go back and just listen to what we've said so far. Um, I'm going to do my best here in the next minute or so just to kind of recap where we've been. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Titus chapter three. That's where we're going to be today. Last week, Keith spent some time uh, in verses 1 through 7. Today, we're going to be taking some time to overlap that and really focus on verses 8 through 11. So we often call this the book of Titus, but this is actually a letter to Titus. So Titus was one of Paul's disciples, and Paul had left him in Crete to help a young church and he was, held, he was there to kind of help tie up some loose ends. Now, Crete is an island in the Mediterranean. This place was a very diverse place, both ethnically and spiritually. Um, 
there was a lot of different things happening in Crete. And the church in Crete is believed to only be a couple of years old, and it's full of new believers. And as the previous church planter, I'll tell you that that is every church planter's dream, a church full of new believers. So new believers are often full of zeal and faith, but they're also at great risk for being led astray. New believers, they have a lot of excitement and zeal and faith, but often the theological roots are not very deep. And this is the church in Crete, and that's part of the problem in Crete. False teachers are causing trouble in this new church, and Paul talks about it in, Paul talks about it in chapter 1. So chapter 1, verse 11, we see that these false teachers are upsetting whole families, and when he says whole family, he's not talking about the Harlan family or the Watson family or your family. He's actually talking about groups of people who've gathered together together to worship Jesus. And as Keith has said before, this is very similar to our MCs that we have here in New City. <coughs> so false teachers are jumping from missional community to missional community, teaching things that are contrary to the gospel. And Paul specifically outlines what he calls Jewish myths. And you've heard Keith talk about this. They would, they would look at the long genealogies and they go, hey, hey, this guy Kenan. I looked this up. It's in Genesis. I'm not making it up. This guy named Kenan. Who's he? What did he do? And so they would make up this whole backstory. Well, you know, Kenan, I think he was a famous guy. <clears throat> and he had a lot of businesses. And they would make up this whole story. They're like, Jesus is great, but what about Kenan? They would say, Jesus is great, but what about this guy? In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul, Paul talks about the circumcision party, and he's likely talking about Jews that would come in behind him and say, you know what, Jesus, yes, but you still got to do all these laws and rules in order to be saved. So yes, Jesus, but you still got to do everything else. They would say it's Jesus plus your good works to be saved. But Paul would say here in Titus that Jesus has saved us, period, by himself. And he has saved us to do good works. Amen? So because of these false teachers, Paul says to appoint elders to protect the church. Paul gives some qualifications for elders. And what we see is that elders are meant to be great examples of what it looks like to love and follow Jesus. They are called to hold firm to the good news of the gospel so they can instruct the church and defend against false teachers and false doctrine, just like we see here in Titus. In chapter 2, Paul tells Titus to encourage the whole church to help each other live in light of the gospel. Paul's urging the church to look out for each other. And as we roll to the end of chapter 2, Paul tells us that the gospel changes everything. Chapter 2, verse 11 tells us that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all men and trains us to renounce ungodliness and live upright lives in this present age. That means the gospel is not something that we mentally agree with, but something that produces tangible change in our lives. So that's how we get to last week's message where Paul says, Titus, remind the church to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people. And he, remi he reminds them and us that we were once like the world. You know how hard it is to talk about yourself in the third person? But today we're in Titus chapter 3 again. But I want to read back over some of these verses in Titus chapter 3. 
verses 3 through 7. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When Paul reminds Titus, For the church to be submissive, gentle, and courteous. He's not saying, hey, Jesus died for you. Now try real hard to be nice. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul here is not appealing to our effort. Rather, he roots his entire command in what Jesus has done for us through the Holy Spirit. He's reminding them to be changed people because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's read that again. He saved us from what? foolishness, disobedience, our wayward passions, sounds like a Monday to me. But how did he do this? By the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. When we come to believe the good news of the gospel, we receive the Holy Spirit and he changes us. This is the work of the gospel. Jesus dies for our sins, he forgives our sins and breaks the power of sin through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so that's how we get to today's verses. So bear with me as we read another chunk of text in Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. This is after Paul has declared the gospel, what it is, and he says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. They are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Paul says this saying is trustworthy. Paul's referencing verses 4 through 7. He's referencing the gospel. Paul has similar statements in 1 and 2 Timothy about the gospel, and he's saying, Titus, this gospel message can be trusted. See, at this moment, Titus has people in Crete who are teaching things that are contrary to the gospel, that are contrary to the work of salvation in Jesus. Titus has people who are confused. Titus has people who have questions. Titus has people who are trying to meet with him and share what they're hearing from these false teachers. They want to know why he's not teaching this new revelation. Titus has people who are being led astray from Jesus. So Paul tells Titus, You can trust this message. He says, tell the people they can trust this message. This is the true gospel message. I'm sure sincere people are coming to Titus, interested by some of the false, what what the false teachers are saying, and they say, Titus, you know, we, we heard about faith in Jesus, but what about circumcision? What about pork? What about sacrifices of bulls and goats? Are you sure we don't need those things? Titus, why aren't we talking more about this guy and this genealogy? He has a compelling story. Titus has people approaching him saying, when are we going to talk about the deeper things? I don't know about you, but that last one hit home for me. 
I mean, none of us probably have a problem with pork or circumcision or sacrificing bulls and goats, but how many of us have probably heard other people or even ourselves said, oh, I know we talk about Jesus, but we want to talk about something deeper. Paul is encouraging Titus to stay the course. Titus, tell the church to stand firm. Don't move from this message. Don't let them lose their awe and wonder at what Jesus has done for them. Paul tells Titus, I want you to insist on this message. If you look back at chapter 1, Paul tells Titus that elders must hold firm to the trustworthy message. That is the gospel. He's saying elders insist on this message. At New City, we are an elder-led church, and we have great elders. To be completely honest, this has been my first church experience where I feel like I've had strong church leadership. When we were planting, I always told people, if you're not wanting to stay with us, I know somewhere you can go. And I always told people, you should go check out New City. I love our elders because they love the gospel, and I've come to love the gospel more because of our elders. In chapter 2, Paul tells Titus to exhort the entire church to help each other live in light of the gospel. See, New City is not just a group of people who meet together on Sunday, but we are a church of missional communities who gather throughout the week and on Sunday. So when we're gathering together, what we have here is groups of families that are gathering together to worship Jesus. And as Keith said, I I had the opportunity to work with a lot of our missional community leaders, and I can tell you they love Jesus, and they live out the gospel in ways that I wish I could. Paul says, don't just trust this message. Don't just stand firm on this message. He said, but Titus, preach this message every chance you get. Now, if you're new here, you might have noticed that we actually preach the same sermon every week. We just look at a different text. We're going to talk about marriage. We're looking at the gospel. Talk about parenting. Looking at the gospel. How to be a good employee. We're looking at the gospel. We just preach one message every week. That's all we do, and we do it through every single page of the Bible. That's because here at New City, we believe there's only one story being told throughout the pages of the Bible. We call that the big story. We believe in one overarching story across every page, and we believe it is the gospel. We believe that God created everything, and it was good. Not just good, but very good. We believe that God, man, and all creation existed in peace and harmony, but all of that changed because of sin. Our original parents, Adam and Eve, were deceived by the first liar, the first false teacher, the serpent. Because of his deception, fellowship with God and man was severed. Adam and Eve blamed each other. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And because of this, all of creation feels the weight of sin. Everything we see goes from very good to very not good. But in the midst of all that seems bad, God promises a redeemer to undo what the serpent has caused. God promises in Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's here that God's great plan of redemption starts. And if we don't already know the story, we would be in constant anticipation of who the serpent crusher is. Imagine you didn't have the New Testament. Imagine you didn't know Jesus. And as you're watching the story unfold, you would ask yourself, is it, is it Noah? 
Is it Abraham? Is it Isaac, Jacob, David, the prophets, Elijah? No. No. <clears throat> but in the Gospels, we meet Jesus. And he's preaching about the kingdom of God. He's healing sickness and disease. He's loving the unlovely. He's forgiving sinners. He's even raising the dead. This is Jesus. He's different than Adam, than Abraham, than Noah, than Isaac, and David. Jesus comes in turning all bad things into good things. In all of this, we see that Jesus is a glimmer of what the world was like when God created all things. So the question is, could this be the one to undo what the serpent has done? What do you think? Good, yes. The entire Bible reveals from front to cover that Jesus Christ is the serpent crusher promised in Genesis. And what we preach in week in and week out is that the good news of the gospel is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The entire Bible works together to tell this one story. That Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live. He died the death we deserve. He was in the tomb three days and was raised from the dead, securing the forgiveness of our sins. So now, we who put our trust in Jesus' work are made righteous with God. Our sins are forgiven, and we are made sons and daughters of God. And one day, Jesus will return and fully and finally return the world to what it was before. Paul tells Titus, this message, that's trustworthy. He says, when people come to you with another message, Titus, insist on this one. Do not relent. Do not let up. Preach the gospel. See, the serpent, false teachers of Crete, and our culture today all have the same thing in common. They all want to challenge the trustworthiness of our message. The same lie the serpent used in the garden is what's used today. Did God really say? It's the same lie. Day in, day out. Did God really say? That's the lie the serpent gave in the garden. When our trials and tribulations in our life come at us, we ask, is God really good? When we see our sin and we are confronted with our sin, we ask ourselves, does he really love? Does he really forgive? Is Jesus' death enough? The world around us would say, you don't need forgiveness. You've done nothing wrong. And religion would say, you've done plenty of good works. And as equally as bad, they would say, you haven't done enough good works. Believer, you can trust this message. It's true. And I know this is true because of the big story. See, the Bible, this is a collection of letters and, and, and different writings throughout hundreds of years that constantly point to the redeeming work of the Messiah, to Jesus. This cohesive story, God has been faithful to bring about his Redeemer. Through sin, sickness, death, rebellion, the rising and falling of kingdoms, God worked through every circumstance to orchestrate the coming of his son. The scriptures say that God oversaw his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And the Bible tells us that God's hand was active at all of this. We can see that God is faithful to his promise in Genesis 3. So because of this is true, because this is true, we can trust that God 
will oversee the work of the gospel in our lives. Through our sin, through our rebellion, through our bad days and what we call our good days, God is faithful. God is faithful to make us into the image of Jesus. This is why Paul says that this message is excellent and profitable for people. The fruit of the gospel is excellent and benefits everyone. Galatians 5, 22 to 23 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, missed faithfulness, and self-control. Imagine if all of us left here today bearing that fruit. Would you say that would be excellent? Would you say that would be good? Would that be beneficial for all people, believer and unbeliever alike? Love in our homes and our neighborhoods, joy in our difficult circumstances, patience and kindness with people who are difficult, would that be good? Wouldn't that be the kind of good that was evident before the fall? Here at New City, we often talk about the church being the kingdom present, meaning we should be a tangible expression of the kingdom of God right here, right now. Earlier, I said that Jesus was a glimmer of the world before the fall. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is called a first fruit of the world to come, a world where sin will be no more, and we, by the transforming power of the Spirit, are called to be a foretaste, a preview of the world to come. And if Jesus is the first fruit, we are the subsequent fruit. Paul tells Titus to, de to keep declaring the gospel because he wants the church to have these kind of good works. Works that display the kingdom's goodness. So Paul has told us why this gospel can be trustworthy. He's told us why this gospel is good. And here in verse 9, Paul's conversation turns and he begins talking about the false teachers and their messages. Like I said, so far Paul tells Titus, you can trust this gospel. This gospel is good news. And this gospel has tangible fruit. So let's look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. Where was that verse in my 20s? I don't know about you, but I was a keyboard warrior. And I can tell you I wasn't battling for the purity of the gospel. I was definitely arguing over secondary theological issues. Stuff that's good, stuff that's important, but stuff that's not the gospel, right? Anybody understand that? It's a keyboard warrior. Do we have any keyboard warriors here? It's election year, people. I know you're here. All these things, these are good things to talk about, but they're not the first thing. The gospel, that is the first thing. As believers, it's so easy to make something else the first thing. Keith has already talked about this previously, but we get wrapped up in spiritual gifts and miracles, numerology, decoding secret messages, but none of that saves. Church government, big church, small church, attractional, missional, none of it saves. The gospel saves. As for decoding secret messages in the Bible, Paul's already told us that the only secret message in the Bible is the gospel. 
It was the mystery hidden through the ages. False teachers, though, are in Crete teaching things that are drawing people away from the gospel and its message. So, Paul, how do we define a false gospel? Let's give a, a definition for this. See, a false gospel attempts to promise us things for a certain price, what Jesus has freely given us through his work. Let me repeat that. A false gospel attempts to promise us things for some type of price, what Jesus has freely given us through his work. Jesus has freely given us so many things, and false gospels say, you can have that for a price. You can have that for a price. It's also any attempt to add to or take away from the work of Christ on our behalf. No matter how much it references Jesus, if it's not the life, death, burial, and resurrection that we're called to trust in, it's not the gospel. While we don't have a lot of information about the specifics of the messages these false teachers were giving in Crete, I can tell you these false teachers probably taught things that were interesting. They were probably compelling. And they were seemingly spiritual. And some of it may have included Jesus. But I can tell you whatever it was, it didn't save. I can tell you our false gospel False gospels today are the same. They are interesting, compelling, and seemingly spiritual, but they do not save. I'll give you an example after I drink this water. In my 20s, there's a reoccurring theme here. In my 20s, I was in some strange spiritual spaces with strange people. I was young, somewhat naive, okay, very naive, full of zeal, full of faith, but my theological roots were not very deep. They were growing, but they were not deep. And I befriended some people, and they believed in a strict adherence to the Old Testament law, to dietary restrictions, to Sabbath, everything, you name it. There was no pork, there was no bacon. And you were at home from Friday, to, from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. They also believed that salvation was in Jesus, but it was in his true name. That's a long story. They believed that salvation was through our works and through finding his true name. At one point, I went and spent the weekend with these people, and I wanted, I want to say these were likable people. They were nice people. They were kind. They were funny and seemingly good people. And to give an example of their dedication to their beliefs, I remember on the Sabbath, we needed, we needed to go to the grocery store. But you can't buy or sell on Sabbath. And we stood there at the window, and we watched the sun go down. And when it went down, I remember he turned to me and said, we can go now. And we went to the store. Our friendship eventually faded because I could not reconcile the Jesus they preached with the one I read about in Scripture. As I matured in my faith, I realized their Jesus offered no hope. As much as I liked them, their gospel is worthless. Their gospel did not answer the problem for sin. Rather, their message left sin in their lap. 
It was up to them to gather enough good works to outweigh their bad. And I'm still not actually clear on how they actually made payment for their previous sins. Their Jesus left them in their sin. Their Jesus was no Messiah. Rather, he was just another Moses handing down laws that they could never, ever be able to keep. Just like in Crete, and for us today, there are no shortage of false teachers. There are no shortage of false gospels. Now, some of these are, for us, super easy to spot. There are just other religious systems that teach how to reach God or the divine. Buddhism, Islam, Taoism, Baha'i, New Age, that's just to name a few. These are not able to offer true salvation or true righteousness. At best, they give you a feeling of enlightenment, but they do not save. But here's where it gets a little more difficult. We have secular messages from the world. And I want to quote David Zoll, an author and and the director of Mockingbird Ministries. He says this, The religious impulse, so our desire for religion, is easier to rebrand than to extinguish. Our religious impulses have migrated away from the church buildings and towards secular pursuits. Rather than looking for for salvation in a particular religion or faith, we are now looking for salvation in everyday pursuits like work, exercise, and romance. The message that the secular world offers is that joy, peace, and righteousness are rooted in everyday pursuits, in our work, in our parenting, in our success, in our money, This may sound strange, but it's in all of our marketing, right? It's how we spend our time. It's how we spend our money, our resources. It's what we talk about. While all these things are good, they can be idols. And they feed us a gospel that does not save. And then last, and sometimes these are just as difficult, They're a message that are perversions of the true gospel. Jesus plus our good works equals salvation. We tend to call this works-based salvation or self-righteousness or law-keeping. Another one, faith in Jesus equals money, health, and no suffering. We call this the prosperity gospel. We could go all day But any message that mentions Jesus but is not in line with the gospel we see preached in Scripture is no gospel at all. This is why Paul says false gospels are unprofitable and worthless. They may seem interesting, they may seem spiritual, and they may even mention Jesus. But in the end, they offer nothing. They are eternally worthless. When those MCs gathered in Crete, false teachers showed up and attempted to draw people's attention away from Jesus' perfect work of salvation. Why? Because they believed, the false teachers, they believed they had found something that was better than Jesus. 
They thought they found something that had more importance or power than Jesus. Let me make a distinction here. False teachers do not threaten the gospel. What Jesus has accomplished is done. It's a finished work, and we enter into that by faith. The danger of false teachers and false gospels is that they threaten where we put our hope, where we put our trust. That's why false teachers must be silenced in the church. That is why Paul tells Titus, these people must be silenced. Because no matter how close it seems to the gospel, if it calls us to trust in something other than Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, it's not good news. That's why Paul tells Titus, avoid these discussions. Do not engage these fruitless debates. Don't let the church get bogged down in these discussions and controversies. Controversies. Rather, keep the eyes of the church fixed on our true hope, on our true peace, which is Jesus. Church, we must put our energy in sharing the gospel and helping people live in light of it. We are not known to be people who argue, who cause division, who quarrel. This is profitable to no one. The fruit of this type of behavior is confusion and division. We should be known as people who talk about Jesus. Do not waste your time or your energy in debates. Rather, preach the gospel. So, Paul, what do we do with false teachers? I'm glad you asked. Paul tells Titus these people must be rebuked. But let me make some clarification here. Paul is not talking about people who are confused about the gospel. We will have people come into our MCs. We will have people who come here with us and, and everywhere else in life, and they'll be confused. They may even ask questions about some of these false gospels. They may even kind of believe some of it. They may be on the fence. Paul's not saying that we rebuke and silence these people. He would say you should encourage them and uplift them in the gospel. You should help them understand the truth. Paul is not talking about people who are young in their faith and who misspeak. He's not talking about those people. He would say those people, you need to encourage them in the gospel and teach them the truth. Rather, Paul is talking about people who have drinking their own Kool-Aid, and they have bought into every bit of it, and they are trying to evangelize people to their viewpoint. That's who Paul is talking about. Paul is saying, Paul is talking about people who've bought into what they're saying and who are actively seeking to evangelize people to their viewpoint. And here's the hardest thing about this. Some of these people may even claim to be believers. It's so much easier if they didn't claim to be believers, right? It'd be so much easier if they claimed to be outside the church. It'd be so much easier if they claimed they didn't know Jesus. But I'm here to tell you that there are many people, and when I say church, I'm talking about church at large, the church. 
there are many people who try to hold the title brother, and they are a false teacher. They are trying to lead people away from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says these people must be silenced. It's these people we warn, and if they do not repent, we have nothing more to do with them. We remove them. Paul says to rebuke them once, then twice. If they do not stop, we must remove them. Paul, is Paul being harsh? Because sometimes our tendency in the church is to not offend anybody. But what you don't realize is there is a lot at stake when it comes to people's faith eternally. And this language is not new for Paul at all. If you look at Romans 16, verses 17 through 18, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul has similar comments in 1 Corinthians 5 for people who persist in unrepentant sin. In 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul encounters similar situations in Ephesus with false teachers and tells Timothy to avoid irreverent babble. Peter has similar words in 2 Peter 2. John has similar words in 2 John 2. And the Bible has constant warnings about false teachers and their messages. Friends, Paul, Peter, James, John are not concerned with people's feelings when it comes to this subject. They are concerned with the purity of the gospel. They are concerned with people hearing that the gospel saves. Paul, in his letter to Titus, is concerned for the well-being of the people in Crete. And as we are about you. This is why we preach the same message every week. This is why every week from any text we will preach the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because we want you to securely put your hope, your faith in Jesus and what he has done. And I can tell you with much certainty that the leaders and elders of this church, if they hear something that's not true, they're going to stand up and say something. I've seen Keith do it. He says, uh, excuse me? Uh, could you repeat that? That's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. Maybe you're an MC. Somebody shows up. I just don't believe you can't get saved unless you wear a purple shirt every day. Purple shirt every day is how you meet Jesus. And you say, I don't think that's Jesus. Meet him, says, hey, man, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to maybe explain what the gospel is. Maybe we could talk sometime. Fellow shows back up. Yeah, I'm really still thinking that purple shirts is the way to meet Jesus. At that point, that's when you call your elders. That's when you call your elders. Friends, this message, and this message alone, is excellent and profitable. 
for all people. This, friends, is the only message that saves. And when you leave this building today, you will be bombarded with message upon message upon message about how you find joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. You're going to find plenty of messages that tell you how you can be made righteous with God. You're going to find plenty of messages that are contrary to this message. And we together must work together to constantly tell each other what the gospel is. We must be like Paul who tells Titus, you can trust this message. We have to tell each other, you have to insist on this message. We have to tell each other, preach the gospel at any chance you get. Do not get wrapped up in foolish controversies. Do not get bogged down in foolish discussions. Rather, just tell people, this is the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for these people and our time together. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us be steadfast in the gospel. Lord, that you would help us to stand firm on the gospel. Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would train our ears to hear that which is not the gospel. Lord, that you would help us become so familiar with the gospel, so familiar with the good news of Jesus, that we would know when we're being told a lie. Help us as we leave here, as we're bombarded with message upon message upon message of what is not the good work of Jesus. Holy Spirit, help us, lead us, guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.